Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and we are here with you, pugcasting from uh, different locations in Connecticut, but we want you to know that uh, we actually have hope of being back in a real pub in the very near future, and we're, we're eager to do that. One of the things that we're trying to uh, determine is how and whether or not, or maybe I should put it, whether or not we should do it, and how, if we decide to do it, we do it. Uh, how do we keep the the video feature in and uh, you know can we be able to record and post to to our Facebook page and then to YouTube and all that kind of stuff? But we'll we'll keep you posted on that. But anyway, we we are excited about that. We're going to be getting some new microphones soon because our Indiegogo campaign was successful and we've got some money, so we're glad. And we thank all the folks that contributed to that. But anyway, as you know, this is the Theology Podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, and I've written stuff. And Tom, tell us about you. Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And Glenn, Glenn. you... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Glenn. And, And go ahead and feel free to give us the segue into the show because it's your day. Sure. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I've got my own little ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. And the reason why I mentioned this time that I'm a professor of early modern Europe is because, well, the way Europeanists do this, the early modern period begins with the Reformation and it ends with the French Revolution. And what I want to take a look at, really, today is the events leading up to the French Revolution. We'll see how far we get. We may get into a few other things. Because I think a lot of what happened in the French Revolution has got some important implications for us today. Okay, So that's that's where we're going here. So it's going to be a bit of a history lesson. Let's start off with uh, 18th century France. France in this period was really just sort of a huge mass of contradictions. It was the wealthiest country in Europe, but it had an impoverished peasantry. It was the center of the Enlightenment, but it had an ignorant peasantry. Uh, It was the most centralized state in Europe, but it was shot through with all kinds of local privileges and rights and things like that that undermined the central government. All kinds of things going on, really complicated mess. If you want a good summary of it, Read the first sentence of A Tale of Two Cities. Uh That'll do it for you. Now, all right, so so that's the conditions in the country. One of the things that was going on that I think was, uh, will be particularly important if we're heading into the revolution is the growth of the Enlightenment. Now, when we talk about the Enlightenment, we usually think of this in really positive terms. I mean, the very word itself, Enlightenment, what's the alternative, the endarkment or something? <laughs> you know, it, it implies that the world was, you know, dark and ignorant and all of that. And then the Enlightenment comes along and um, the lights go on and everybody starts thinking again and so on. This is sort of the stereotype of it. But mm-hmm. l- l- let's take a look at what the Enlightenment in France particularly really was, because the Enlightenment varies depending on what country you're in. Um, In France, what you see emerging is uh, the Enlightenment is led by a group of people who are called the philosophes. Now, the word philosophe, if you look it up in a dictionary, French-English dictionary, it will say a philosopher. These guys weren't philosophers, not in our sense of the word. What they were were basically social critics. Now, these a lot of these guys were really bright. They were polymaths. You know, you get people who are writing treatises in mathematics and philosophy and doing poetry and literary criticism and so on, all wrapped up in the same person. These guys were really bright. But the main thing that they were, in a lot of ways, were social critics. They didn't like the way the country was being run. They didn't like the way the society was. And what they really wanted to do was find ways of improving it using reason. They wanted, they, you know, they had their theories, the, the ways that they thought the world should be, and they believed that they ought to really get a chance to implement their ideas to prove that they were right and that everything would be better if you did it their way. Um, now, the fact of the matter is, France in this period did have a lot of problems. It, there was a lot of social reform that was needed, and these guys thought they were just the people to put it in place. And what you do then is you get this group of intellectuals who then 
sort of team up with the progressive aristocracy and the wealthy bourgeoisie, the wealthy middle class people, the business owners, people like that. Um, they meet together in these rooms called salon where they, they'd rub shoulders and this would give the philosophes a chance to spread their ideas to the, the classes that were really the movers and shakers in society. Let, let's stop there, Glenn, and just think about that for a moment because I don't think that most people sort of in our churches, you know, sort of in the sort of mainstream of, a, of our society, uh, think about it in those terms. They don't, they, don't, they don't think about the way it happened then, but they also don't sort of understand the way it, it, it's always been that way. <laughs> in other words, you know, idea people uh, generally are not great implementers. Um, they, they, and, it, and there's this kind of paradoxical kind of relationship that, that they have with these people who are good implementers, uh, people who are wealthy, but people who are wealthy maybe – but also have aspirations to make some kind of contribution to the public good or whatever. And so there's or, a kind of meeting. Yeah. Or intellectual pretensions. Well, yeah, I, I was putting it in the best light. <laughs> yeah. right. So, um, so, so th this is the way that it, it, in France, this is how it happened. These ideas of this sort of intellectual elite, progressive, liberal, all of these kinds of things, spread to the propertied classes, the aristocracy, the business owners, merchants, all of these kinds of things. And these are the people who have at least the potential to implement the ideas. Now, the thing about this is, one of, one of the, I would argue, fatal flaws in this whole thing is that these salons are not study rooms. They're, they're places where people meet for entertainment, to talk, to schmooze, to do all of those kinds of things. And so in order to be invited back, you had to be an entertaining conversationalist. <laughs> you had to be witty. Right. And here's the problem. Mm -hmm. When you're a social critic, mm -hmm. it is much easier to be witty in identifying problems than in proposing solutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the net result is these rooms were places that were just full of satirical, sarcastic, snide <laughs> critiques of the society. Mm -hmm. Only the vaguest idea of what we're going to do, how we're going to implement change. You mean the mm -hmm. French? The French <laughs> of all people? <laughs> yeah, I, hard to believe, but that was the way they were in the 18th century. <laughs> so, um, you know, this, re this reminds me of a, my, my favorite, one of my favorite uh, moralists, La Rochefoucauld, his maxims, his sayings, you know, he's the one who's, who coined the phrase, you know, uh, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. And, he, and it would, of course, made the, the room just roll with laughter, you know, and that was what it, what it was all about, you know, for him. It was sort of, you know, he was stand up comedy uh, for the, the salons. <laughs> right. And, and if you want, you want a really good example, look at Voltaire. Oh, yeah, yeah. Voltaire was sort of the uber philosoph in a lot of ways. Right. And if you read a work like Candide, Candide satirizes pretty much anything that moves and several things that don't. Right. I mean, right. You know, he, he goes after the French. He goes after the Germans. He goes after the English, the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Italians, the Turks. He goes after Catholics, Lutherans, Protestants. The only one he doesn't go after are the Anabaptists because that's shooting fish in a barrel. Everybody picks on them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. just sort of on and on and on. Anything, anything that did anything, Voltaire satirized. He made fun of, he mocked. Right, right. <laughs> and and the, thing about the, the thing that is really significant is Voltaire spent 25 years away from Paris. Part of that was because he was exiled for part of it. He had his penchant for getting himself into trouble by insulting the wrong people. But when his final play was written, he, it was going to open in Paris, and he took a five-day journey there to see the opening of this play. And when he got there, he was treated like a major cultural hero, a major cultural icon. Mm. Um, he is, you know, he, he, it's almost like a Roman triumph. You know, the, the, the triumphant general returning to the right. capital. Hmm. And he died shortly thereafter. Um, 
1778, if I remember right. This is 11 years before the revolution. But I would argue that Voltaire's welcome in Paris meant that the revolution was inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Exactly what form it would take was still up in the air. But at that point, the revolution was inevitable because once you internalize the kind of radical critique of society that Voltaire offered, once that got internalized to the degree that he is considered the major cultural hero, then that society can't stand. Right. You've yeah. lost, once you lose Paris, you lose France. And, yeah. and basically the old regime, the old order, the ancien regime that had really governed French life for centuries was so thoroughly discredited as evidenced by the treatment of Voltaire that its collapse was inevitable. Right, right. Now you also had at this time Rousseau's significant influence, correct? Right. Yeah. And, and he, he is another seed kind of in kind of first fruits of the romantics that have this kind of notion of, of the civilizing and the, the, um, the limits that any kind of civilization starts in, in any kind of structure um, starts to impose is already something that one needs to be liberated from. And then there's also this notion of the general will. So there, there's a whole pool of ideas floating around readying um, the place for that kind of move. Yeah, I find it curious that people think Rousseau, a lot of people think Rousseau's kind of neat and interesting and all of that, the sort of back to nature theme and, and all of that. They sort of ignore the fact that during the terror, Robespierre was a disciple of Rousseau. And he was essentially trying to implement Rousseau's ideas and in the process killed a couple of hundred thousand Frenchmen. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's and at a personal level, and just in terms of his personal conduct, Rousseau was not a nice person. No, he was no. a he was a paranoid. He was a, a sexually irresponsible, libertine, fathering children and siring children, and handing them over to basically yeah. a woman who was incapable of caring for them and expecting the state to fill in the gap. Kind of like a lot of fathers today. Put a, put them in orphanages. Volt. He actually wrote a couple of books on educating children. That's right. That's right. <laughs> They're extremely important today in its schools of education. Oh yeah. And Voltaire himself commented, "Why would you take advice on child rearing from a guy who fathers a bunch of kids and then abandons all of them?" Right. Right. Well, yeah. There's. There's. Well, this kind of gets to something that I think many of us feel when we think about not only this particular episode of the French Revolution, but when we think about the intelligentsia, you know, just generally speaking. <clears throat> uh, what we have are people who give advice without skin in the game. These are people who, for whom, uh, you know, their, their directives are, are to be implemented upon other people. And um, anyway, that's a, just a whole other thing. But, but one of the well, things about... Actually, Chris, no, it isn't. <laughs> that's one of the okay. reasons why I picked this topic. So well, go, go for it, go for it then. Well, all right. I hope you will notice that one of the things that I mentioned was that the Enlightenment people had these radical critiques of society and they wanted to implement their theory. I mm-hmm. used that word intentionally. Right, right. Because what we are seeing right now is effectively in America the same kind of thing. You have an intelligentsia that has their theory about the way things ought to be, that is based on a complete rejection of the past, based on a complete rejection and discrediting of everything that has occurred or existed in society, that is set up in alliance with business and the, uh, the power brokers and the economic powers in the society to implement this, we're seeing a repeat of the pattern that we saw in 18th century France. And I would argue that if in fact, the kind of radical critique of American culture and society that you see taking place among people who are exponents of critical theory that is now being embraced certainly by the schools, by universities, and increasingly by business and government entities, especially big business, if that gets 
embraced, the revolution's inevitable here, just like it was when Voltaire was embraced. Right. Now, one of the things about that, that we don't know yet. Right. But one of the things, of course, you know, when we talk about theory is, is often, you know, within the scientific frame, you know, you take your theory, you create an experiment, uh, you see how it goes. <laughs> and then with, with, and it's usually on a small scale in a, you know, in a laboratory. So it doesn't like spread <laughs> if yeah. it's, if it's it got viral, you know, pot, you know, is it potentially viral? Uh, but I've noticed that we don't try that. We, basically it's like, we're all in on the experiment, uh, or nothing. Except we already did in Seattle. Well, yeah. the, and that actually brings out a, something I wanted to get at. You know, we, we, in the United States, we've had innumerable, uh, F, you know, attempts to create sort of small scale utopian communities and they've all, you know, you know, failed, uh, you know, you know, here in new England and upstate New York and, you know, we've got all the, you know, the, the debris of failed, uh, you know, cultish or whatever, you know, the, the shakers or the transcendentalists of Massachusetts, just yeah. example after example of failure. Yeah. And people should remember that utopia means nowhere. Right. It doesn't well, it's interesting because the utopia is similar to this, the, the, you know, the episode we did a couple of weeks ago on presentism, this, this present nowhere, right? Uh, nowhere in terms of time, nowhere in terms of space. You know, it, it's nihil, if you want. It, it is something of a nihil, maybe, a, a type of nihil, a void that somehow is able to generate absolute commitment grounded in nothing. Um, it has no telos other than kind of superficial and vague kind of um, ideals. And even these are not, like you said, the closer they get to reality, there's something that they, 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 they almost push away. They don't want reality to come up against the ideal, and therefore there is this kind of distancing from it. So th this, this, uh, you know, I always, you know, I can use the term Gnostic if I want, you know, kind of in a, in a certain way to describe it. I mean, it can be described other ways, but there is this sense in which um, somebody in their kind of pure radical autonomy that kind of just is a self-assertion out of this nothingness um, is asserting um, something onto reality that really is governed by nothing, nothing other than kind of psychological mechanisms of of conditioning and triggering. That's what's that's what's kind of I, I, you could not probably sit a lot of people down back at the French Revolution. <laughs> or now and actually probably get a coherent anything out of them in terms of what they're up to and what they want to see other than just these, these kind of, you know, um, kind of generalized points and psychological symbolic terms. Because it's much easier to be witty when you're doing a critique than when you're actually proposing a solution. Right. Yeah. yeah. Anyone who's ever built anything knows that building is a lot harder than tearing things down. No, that's one of the reasons why I think it'd be really helpful for everyone to actually, you know, actually get out and work with their hands. Because what you discover in the process is that your will isn't the only factor. <laughs> there, there's a kind of feedback that goes on with the materials, the people, all this kind of stuff. And you try to, you try to do the best you can. You know, uh, I, I've heard politics described as the art of the possible. And so, you know, you're working with human beings, you're working with the conditions on the ground, and you're trying to make the best of it. Well, and I think this is one of the, the problems of what, you know, maybe, maybe you have to shift from Kantian man to psychological humanity, right? A psychological man, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but here, here you have something very similar. Um, I mean, think about the way in which so much education now is addressing these, I mean, basically, you know, in a root, almost in a ruse so sense, um, protecting them from having to bump up against the consequences of social life, uh, real social life. Um, and so there's always a buffer. There's always, um, you know, the, the only things that get kind of reprimanded are the ones that are not socially fashionable in terms of political correctness. But, you know, what you see run, running rampant around the kind of anarchy going on is, you know, I mean, clearly children who didn't have those boundaries and and this, there was a breaking down it was an intentional breaking. schools have been intentional doing this mm. the left in particular 
Um, this is this is part of their um, catechesis, if you will. Yeah. Um, and and so this this creates this kind of um, this kind of anthropology, this view, this notion of the human being that is completely manipulatable by these particular symbols and these particular triggers, and they have substance besides they can't build they can't even build an argument and if you have to build an argument so they've been protected from ever having to bump up against the real world whether it's with their hands in the dirt or even just genuine social discourse yeah but they're also the people who draw the hardest boundaries mm -hmm. They've never had boundaries themselves. And once yeah. they get to a position where they can assert themselves, the first thing they do is they set up hard boundaries around whatever it is that they believe, which can shift. Yeah. But whatever it is currently, those are absolute boundaries that must not be transgressed under any circumstance or we will crush you. Yeah. Because utopias are always totalitarian. And, and that boundary is a buffer to pre prevent reality from, from impacting them because it does force the ideas to have to manifest themselves of how detached they are from, from being able to be realizable in human living. And if in fact the ideas don't work, it must be because of a class enemy. So we go after the kulaks or whoever it is in the Soviet Union who are preventing the utopia from arriving, or we go after the we do the cultural revolution in China or whatever. Anybody who stands against the program is an enemy, and anything that goes wrong is done by government infiltration and sabotage, and we've got to root these people out and get rid of them because any dissension threatens the coming of utopia. Right. Yeah, it's, it's like the, I think it was a film recently, it was called There's No, There's no Murder in Paradise or something along these lines. And it was about the, the fact that there was a serial killer in, in you know, in the Soviet Union, and yet ah. it, there was no affirmation of it because you can't use those terms and you can't look for things that actually you become a threat if you utilize terms like that because mm -hmm. you break the image that they're trying to present from their ideals. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very fragile thing and it has to protect itself with very rigorous force and aggression. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things, you know, you mentioned the kulaks, like when we think about the kulaks, we're not talking about like the owners of Amazon or Google here. These were people who were virtually peasants themselves, but they were, yeah, but they owned the land. I mean, they, they were basically people who were self-sufficient, virtuous, work, hardworking. When we, when, we, when, we, when we hear the term petite bourgeois, you know, we're talking about small holders. These are people who own a shop, maybe a small farm, you know, and then and they're the target of the radicals, and they, and they, uh, the radicals uh, are in collusion with significant power brokers in society. And this is something I think that has puzzled many onlookers, particularly those who come from sort of a lower middle class, middle class background. They're like, why is it that these you know Google people and these Amazon people and all these other people are lining up? with all this, this radical stuff, and why am I the bad guy? I mean, I, what, what have I done? I mean, I own a, you know, a hardware store. I uh, you know, uh, built my own house. I, you know, I, I've, I've done these things. I've taken care of myself. I've, I've been responsible, and I'm the guy that is the target. Whose uh, gets burned down in the riot. That's it. That's it. I, in fact, I remember the Rodney King riots. Uh, I was in L.A. right before him. You could feel it in the air. And then when the, when the riots broke out, I remember this uh, black business owner. He was, it was just it was, uh, heart-wrenching to see him. His, his business in the neighborhood had been burnt down by the rioters, black Americans. And he was standing outside saying, why? Why did you burn my business down? I grew up in this neighborhood. You're, you know... I know you people, you know me, what, what, what was this all about? And everybody's heads were, you know, hung low 
Everybody was ashamed. He was weeping. But that, that's what you get in these revolutions. Yeah. It's worth noting that although the reputation, when, when the terror happens, and we'll get to the terror in a minute, when the terror happened, the majority of people executed were not contrary to popular belief, the aristocracy or the wealthy. Most of them were urban workers, the proletariat types, peasants, things like that. Which gets me back to the, the kulaks. There, have, have you ever seen the, uh, the documentary by Werner Herzog, Happy People? No, Happy People, it's a marvelous, it's, it's about the kulaks, about some kulaks, a community of kulaks who had gone out to Siberia. Yeah. You know, because, of the, because of the revolution, they fled so that they could secure their freedom in some of the most difficult terrain in the world. Yeah. <laughs> They're in Siberia, of all places. At least there we'll be left alone. <laughs> and they, they carve out this existence in the wilderness. And the name of the documentary is Happy People. <laughs> they well, were it, genuinely happy. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, were, they were left alone because the, the commies didn't want anything to do with them out there. <laughs> it, it, it also, there's another kind of telling, telling about, you know, the kind, even the capacity of enduring that kind of stuff. I don't think most people have any clue of what people endured in the kulaks. And uh, I, have, I have relatives on my Finnish side um, who actually were contacted by relatives they had that were actually born in the kulaks. They were fought they, during the war. The, one of the oldest um, were captured, uh, end up being sent to the kulaks and Siberia, end up having children there. Those children were born in the kulaks. They didn't even, they, didn't, they knew Russian, they knew German, and they knew Finnish. That's it. And when they left, they knew they had family in the U.S. They contacted my relatives and met in Germany. But the interesting thing is this sense of, of spirit that, that was not able to be broken in such heinous situations. The first thing my 90-year-old relative did when he was actually liberated from the Kulaks is went back to Finland and wanted to get in his sauna. <laughs> <laughs> So we should, we, I, I think, though, that maybe some of our listeners may want to have a, a clarification here. So, so what you're referring to is the, the, is the gulags, in other words, the, like the gulag archipelago. Yes, I'm talking and, about and the encampments. Prison, the, the, the yeah. prison camps. And the kulaks were a people. Okay, I'm hearing you through the filter. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And the kulaks were a people that, that uh, had been persecuted who were originally you know, in Russia and the Ukraine and went out. Yeah. Uh, the, anyway. the best way to think of a kulak, it's like an English yeoman. Right. Yeah. They're, they're people, they're farmers who own their own land. They're not serfs. They're not, um, they're not uh, tenant farmers or anything like that. They own their own land. And they were, since they owned something, they were class enemies to the communists. Right. Yeah. And property, you and, see, and, see that, that connection as well. Is, is, is the tie is, in some whether it's Rousseau and... and his circumstance, property is very much tied to the civilizing, which is tied to the evil. Then right. also, you see that very much now. If you're a property owner or defending your property, you're seen as the system and complicit in the system. So you're evil no matter how you look at it. Right. Whereas in the, the American experience and also in the classical Republican experience, property is where your virtue was cultivated. Right. You know, it's because you own property. property that you that's why there were property qualifications for voting. The idea was that if you had property, number one, you had skin in the game. Right. And, yeah. Um, so you were less likely to take uh, crazy risks. And number two, if you could manage your property well, it demonstrated a certain degree of wisdom and, and um, virtue. And that's, uh, you know, when we think about the early church, the Apostle Paul regarding, you know, elders in the church, if you can't manage your own household, how do you expect to manage the household of God? So, yeah. you know, the idea is, is that if your kids don't respect you, why, why would you expect anyone in the church to respect you? Mm. Right. Yeah. Mm. Now, I'd, I'd like to jump ahead to another element of the French Revolution here. I mean, there are all kinds of things that we can talk about. The French Revolution has been discussed incessantly since it happened. Um, but the thing that ultimately ends up triggering it is a fiscal crisis. Oh, the French government was in such severe debt that it was in danger of going bankrupt. 
And under those circumstances, that's what forced the calling of the Estates General, which leads ultimately to the storming of the Bastille and the setup of the National Convention and so on. So it's the fiscal crisis, the fact that the government was in hock past its earlobes and couldn't pay its bills that was the precipitating factor for the revolution. Hmm. Did you know that if you were to try to pay back the U.S. national debt at the rate of a dollar a second, it would take over 700,000 years? Right. Just yeah. a quick side note. I mean, and that was several months ago. It's probably considerably more than that now. Right. Yeah, and we're the, in a world where people are holding our paper. And if, those, if all those people were to call it, if there was a situation in the United States that called into question the, 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 uh, the solvency of the currency, all those notes get called. Yeah. And, and you, you, what, what, what follows is Great Depression and probably a world war. It's a, yeah, it's a collapse of the entire global economic system, and that is always accompanied by major war. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's just note that. When the fiscal crisis hits, ultimately what ends up happening is all these Enlightenment theory guys take over via the National Convention, goes by a couple of different names. And what they discover very quickly is their theories can't solve the problem. The fiscal crisis continues. They attempt to solve it by doing something like confiscating church property. That's where they always go, isn't it? <laughs> yep. yep. They, they attempt to solve it by confiscating church property. Then they begin issuing paper money, which initially starts off as being like government bonds and then turns into mandatory currency. And then when that didn't cover it, they began inflating the money supply. Quantitative easing. Okay. And when that didn't work, it degenerated into ultimately the urban working classes allying themselves with the most radical party in the revolution, the Jacobins. They take over, and that's when Rousseau gets implemented and you see the terror. Yeah. Now, the, the problem, of course, is that I don't think I, I've, I've had very little evidence that many of the most radical people in this current situation we find ourselves in have any understanding of how economics generally has worked in the past. Right. There, 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 there's a kind of a magical thinking that seems to, yeah. seems to, 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 to hold the minds of many people. Right. Yeah. The, the assumption that business can pay whatever it is that you demand for wages without raising prices or anything else as if businesses were made of money. Right. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, it, Go ahead, go ahead, Tom. Universities and stuff. I mean, I hate to be, you know, blanket honest, but I think a lot of the people currently enacting <laughs> the kinds of things they're doing are, I mean, just completely have no clue about basic things, basic mm -hmm. reasoning, um, basic inference, basic mathematics, basic economics, basic history. It, this is what I mean by psychological. I mean, they, they've been geared to be uh, socialized in a particular way and, and see anything that's a threat to that. And so you can't really sit down and have a you know, conversation about economics and they'll be like, ah, okay, that's a better viewpoint. I mean, this is, literal, this is literally something very, you know, something very um, easily manipulatable by power forces and these psychological triggers. I mean, all, look, you just have to display a video without any context and it can set roaring. I know some of it's manufactured, but on the other side, it's some of it's not. And, um, you know, that kind of fervor, it's kind of what, I mean, I think I always say sometimes maybe the analogy is what we know of certain, the kind of witch hunts in, in early New England at a certain point, the kind of, once it becomes a point of hysteria, um, but one of the things that I, I'm curious about, and I've always been tracing, you know, the kind of things that lead to those kind of conditions. I know uh, Eliot used to write on propaganda and the way in which those things were working. And technology is really um, very guilty in a lot of this. And this is something they didn't have, of course, in the French Revolution. 
But you can see, let's take the French Revolution and then just put it into a situation in which you have technology capable of manipulating the way that it does. I mean, you're dealing with a, a very, a very severe set of circumstances um, on that end. But here's my question. What you see in, in the French Revolution, you could understand certain kinds of um, ethical drives because certain philosophical assumptions or theological assumptions were considered absolute assumptions. But what you have now is, is almost a, a, you know, it's what uh, one writer, uh, I can't remember his name at this moment, called the retreat to commitment. Um, what you have is sort of a, a commitment when people know that it's only a relative and arbitrary vision, but they turn it into an absolute vision. It becomes my identity or I'm threatened. Um, and so you have a, a, you have something going on now that I think um, is has the capacity to be far worse than anything we've ever known in terms of revolution um, because of the, the, the kind of pliable yet absolutist psychology of of people that are, are really ready to uproot what they would what we would consider almost the most advanced time in human history in terms of opportunity and wealth and anything else to turn it into the most oppressed and enchained situation and yeah, we have the fattest poor people in the history of the world yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing. People, you know, I, I ask people, I ask my classes, I've stopped doing this, but I used to ask my classes, um, is there poverty in America? And the answer is, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of poverty in America. <laughs> and then I point out to them that in some parts of the world, what poverty means is people are dying of starvation in the streets. Oh, well, we don't have poverty like that, but we yeah. have poverty because, I mean, it's all relative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, in a global, from a global perspective, we have God. I mean, there is a certain amount of it, but it's vanishingly small. Well, this this raises a couple of interesting questions that I've, or at least it raises the questions in my mind that I've been pondering for a while. One has to do with relative privation, which is what we're talking about here. In an absolute sense, that's what I was getting at. We have, uh, in terms of material well-being, the best situation in the history of the world. Uh, and there's, there's no arguing with that. I mean, if you try to argue with that, it just demonstrates just how much your mind has been shaped by, by anti-Western ideologies. But the other thing uh, has to do uh, with just kind of the, the progress of civilization you know, there are, there are people, and I think we've talked a little bit about this in the past, who talk about sort of the cycles of civilization, sort of the, the, sort of the uh, process by which a civilization grows, matures, enters into sort of senescence, and decay. Uh, Jacques Brezun, um, you know, he wrote a book here, uh, or published a book here a few years ago called Dawn to Decadence. And when I've, when I've, whenever I've thought about the word decadence, before I read his book, I always thought, oh, okay, decadence is a time in which everybody's sort of given themselves over to physical pleasures, sensuality, that kind of thing. But when I read Barzun, he said, no, he corrected me, you know, in effect, he said, decadence is essentially when a civilization has lost its reason for being, its purpose. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't really have a future anymore. Yeah, it that, doesn't, that resonates. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, but and, and it's interesting, like because I, you know, I, I, I notice, you know, kind of I'll listen to kind of different feeds here and there, interpretations. You often see what you know what tend to be the kind of conservative responses to kind of these moves in society, but it, it always tends to move towards the economic and the material in terms of what we're living in the. And I think what they're doing is they're they're missing the, the kind of heart of it. Is there is a certain kind of under the oppression is a certain kind of spiritual desperation. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, the, the, the conservative that toward the, oh, you're living in the best economic times and here's the answer, a good job, um, has miss, missed the point. 
Um, and, and I really think this is kind of an opportunity for the, the you know, the kind of substantive Christian um, that, that, that use, utilizes its own riches rather than falls in the polarities of right and left um, to actually say, wait a minute, they, you know, what you have on the one hand is a kind of a, a, the left, especially a poverty of vision in terms of where they actually sit in terms of opportunities and, 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 and the capacity to realize them in ways that doesn't, do not have to tend towards new forms of oppression. But on the, on the other side, the, the, the critique needs to be, you know what, you can't just offer our daily, you know, you know bread alone. <laughs> you know? you right. can't live by bread alone. And having a lot of bread at your table is not the answer. Um, yeah, and there's a kind of irony to this, Tom, isn't there? Because, you know, some of the people in the Christian left would say, you're absolutely right, Tom, and that's why we need to get on the justice bank line. Again. Yeah, that's but, right. But what they mean by that is... Yeah. Uh, we need to make sure that the bread is evenly distributed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's we're, it. That's talking, it. That's right. And we're <laughs> the bread of life, yeah. and and I think that's what gets left out of you know the the polarities here. Um, when you can integrate the 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 ability to have bread that can be widespread, but it's oriented properly to the bread of life, you don't have to you don't have to break into the this kind of competition. Um, the Christian the Christian vision is always holistic in the, in the sense that it knows how to order these things and order them in ways not to become the extremes. The problem is we like to run with the you know the creaturely and and we end up breaking it apart there. But but it is interesting. I mean you know in 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 the way these things get framed, you get. I mean, Christianity just sort of gets lumped into either the, 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 you know, oh, I'm just defending the kind of materialist conservatism, or, and that therefore makes me guilty of the lack of equal distribution and equity and everything else, um, when it actually becomes the very point that you have the capacity to, to redirect that stuff without having to, to, to end up in the extremes of destroying everything. <laughs> um, and, and so, I mean, it, it's, a, it's an opportunity, but it's one that requires a lot of rigor in terms of a self-conscious kind of Christianity that does not lose sight of the serious you know teleology about why we're here and what we're up to is we don't have we can we can utilize um everything the creation has and the moment in time that we are um but we don't have to become become part of the polarities that have both detached themselves from the the source that that kind of orders in the right way i don't know if that made sense but yeah. Now, I, I was going to do a little more with the French Revolution, but this is a good transition point to a, a, a different direction. One of the key questions that you have to ask about the late 18th and early 19th century is why the French Revolution didn't happen in England. Hmm. In other words, why there wasn't a copycat revolution there. Hmm. Because the fact is, England was in really bad shape in the late 18th century. You know, you talk about decadence. Um, the future George IV, when he was Prince of Wales, seduced 7,000 women and kept a lock of each of their hair. Wow. That's how we that's, know that's even, how many there were. That, that's a, even better than Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah. <laughs> now, if, now, when you're going to be the future king of England, I imagine that's a great yeah. line. But, you know, it's still, um, you know, 25% of... Unmarried women in London were prostitutes. The average age was 16, and there were brothels that specialized in only girls under 14. Hmm. There were massive problems with gin. You had, and the reason for that is you're in the middle of something called the enclosure movement where a lot of people were losing their, their land and while you still had the same number of workers in the countryside, you also had a lot of surplus people who end up moving into the cities and start getting stuck in factories that are, OSHA would, would, would shut these things down instantly. They were cold, they were brutal, 
your pace was set by the machine, not anything else. Husbands, wives, and children all had to work to make ends meet because they paid dirt wages. Women and children were especially valued because if a machine jammed, they had small hands and could reach in and pull stuff out of the gears. Oh, but if they aren't quick enough, excuse me, your hand gets crushed and you're maimed for life. Mm. Oh, and then you lose your job. Mm. I mean, this was the conditions in England in this period. It was horrible. And yet there was no revolution there. Nobody, I mean, there are a number of theories why, but I think a good part of it actually predates the late, 19, the late 18th century. I think it goes to the earlier 18th century in which there was what is technically called the evangelical revival in England. The American counterpart is the Great Awakening. But the evangelical revival included uh, Howell Harris and the Welsh revival. It included the Wesleys and Whitfield. There was a Calvinist component. There was an Arminian component. There were all different components to it. But it hit at a time in England, the only acceptable form of religion was, quote, pro forma religion. I met a guy once who said that the beauty of being an, he was from England, he said the beauty of being an Anglican is you don't actually have to do anything. <laughs> um, and that was more or less the attitude. You get baptized in church, you get married in church, you get buried in the church, get your kids baptized, that's about it. You don't, and you go to church on Sunday. Anything more than that, you were a holy roller. You were enthusiastic, was the word they used. But then the revival hits, and it plays primarily among the lower classes. And there is a good suspicion that the revival that had taken place earlier was the thing that provided the buffer that, it fought, that prevented England from degenerating into the chaos of the French Revolution. And it probably had a, something to they do with They were acting too. as salt, they were acting as leaven, right. they were doing all of those things. Yeah, probably also has something to do with just the you know, sort of the ascendancy of England at that time. I mean, you know, and there, there's always uh, two ways to sort of look at something. You know, you can look at its, uh, you know, uh, downside or its 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 uh, uh, problems or injustices. But then, you know, when you do that, you lose sight of the many things that were positive that were going on. And so whenever we have, you know, any kind of view of the past, we, we really need to have both eyes open. We can't just look at one or the other. And our tendency today is to only keep the eye open that sees the bad. Maybe the problem, you know, 70, 80 years ago was to keep the other eye open that only saw the good. You know, we need to have a bi biocular sure. vision. Yeah. But, 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 but what I'm getting at is, is that there were a number of things that came out of that revival uh, that were great. And um, I think that those, but the, the, I think this kind of gets to what Tom was getting at, though. They weren't, they weren't uh, promoting revival um, explicitly to save England from the French Revolution. Nope. No. That's right. Yeah. And, and by the way, you are right. England is, is in ascendancy now. England is really the dominant power globally that may have helped, but it doesn't explain why the lower classes who were really, well, read Dickens, uh, the lower classes that were really getting whacked in a lot of ways, it doesn't explain why they didn't follow the inspiration of the French. Well, I, and, what I, guess what I, I guess what I was getting at though, Glenn, was the idea that, is that um, because of the harmony within the society, relatively speaking, I mean, there was still tension, there was still conflict, but certainly it wasn't what we saw in France. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But because of that, it was a, the ascendant power. There, there was a sense in which the, the virtue that was so evident within the, you know, the sort of the, 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 the people who were participating in the revivals in the lower classes, it was so evident they were better workers, they were, better, they were honest, they were doing things, they were, they, and they became upwardly mobile. Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. there were a lot of things that were going on that were positive. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that if you actually take a look at it, the Enlightenment theorists out there didn't really, I mean, 
arguably with the Napoleonic Code, they created sort of a better society, arguably. But that was after literally hundreds of thousands of French people killed during the terror alone. In England, you see a better society emerging largely because of the work of later generations of people from the evangelical revival. It's your Wilberforces, it's your, you know, the Clapham sect, it's all of those people that really spearhead a transformation in England that results in incredible social change, positive things happening, and it's done completely without bloodshed. You know, yeah. A guy named Bebbington, a historian who studied evangelicalism, argues that evangelicalism is built around a handful of concepts. Uh, one of them is the centrality of the Bible. One of them is the centrality of Christ. One of them is the centrality of the cross. One of them, though, is the idea that you need to root sin out of wherever it is lodged, which means you need personal repentance and reform, but also because sin embeds itself in society, you need social reform as well. So evangelicals historically in America and in England were the ones who spearheaded social reform. And they accomplished it in England and created a far, far better society without the bloodshed you see in the revolution. And I mean, there's it, it is a lot there too. Um, I mean, on, on one end you have evangelicalism and, and revivalism kind of growing in a certain kind of reaction to certain kind of enlightenment impacts sure. in church. Um, and, you know, of course, some of it got read off as enthusiasm, but others, I mean, especially in the U.S., when you have figures like Jonathan Edwards, who's able to, to, to combine kind of the riches of Christian tradition with what he would see as kind of true insights from the Enlightenment, you, you have a very different, uh, and, and you could argue that he even stopped the spread of certain things within in, in the U.S. just through some of his own writings. Um, it's been argued, Perry Miller and different figures like that argue. Um, one of the interesting things, though, you, you get is um, evangelicals did not take up their social concerns and they're, they're, they're addressing the sin situation, uh, the sin issues in, in society, um, merely from a, you know, what, what kind of starts today is kind of the social justice notion of kind of the kingdom of God on earth. Theirs was driven very differently. It was a pursuit of the transcendent, and that's the byproduct. And the form of life that corresponds to true transcendence is one that is fully immersed in engagement with the earthlings. And so imminent and transcendence are, are fully connected. There isn't a polarity there. And so yeah, which see, means that you have to engage in social reform. You do. You have to. And, but the, the engagement with it is, is the natural byproduct of your pursuing God for God's own sake rather than exactly. pursuing engagement. And so what happens is that gets, that gets shifted and severed with Kant. Of course, you break off the transcendent reference and everything becomes this worldly. And then it becomes out of the this worldly resources. And now there's competitions, you know, the power, you know, the worldly powers. And so everything is about asserting who can control the government in order to implement the Christian social vision. And that's very different than what the, the you know, the abolitionists were doing. You know, they're arguing this on the doctrine of the Imago Dei of human beings the full integrity of it. It's, it's the true Christian vision. It's not about top-down, I mean, you know, kind of politics down um, uh, um, kind of authority, you know, authority. It's grassroots. That's right. It, and and that's, that's the, the interesting thing about the, the, if this theory about, the, you know, the revivals being the thing that prevents England from degenerating into chaos if that's correct, and I think there's a lot of truth there. I don't think it's the only thing, but I think that there's a lot of truth in that. It points to a couple of different things. One of them is that the kingdom of God does not advance with worldly power. Yeah. The kingdom of God does not advance by secular means. Yeah. That when you have a revival that is taking place at a grassroots level, when it's hitting real people where they live, even the lower classes, this is going to be the kind of thing that is going to seed society for genuine change, positive change, without requiring violence. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things that we've we've suffered from is a uh, is a a tendency to 
cast aspersions on the dead, libel the dead. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't do them justice and we, and we don't even bother to do our research. I was reading recently here a marvelous uh, piece by uh, Elizabeth Nixon. I don't know if uh, N-I-C-K-S-O-N. I think maybe you guys have seen it in C2C Journal. Anyways, she was a leftist. She, you know, she uh, writes about her years, you know, as uh, the ghostwriter for Nelson Mandela and just different things. I mean, this gal's pedigree when it came to, you know, the uh, bona fides and the left was just impeccable. And she's renounced it all. And uh, she renounced it all because she actually went to the trouble of doing some research on her own family. She made a bunch of assumptions about them, and they turned out to be entirely wrong. <laughs> and, and she went back and researched you know, the, the, the 400 years of her, her, her personal family history and discovered not only were her, were her ancestors marvelous people and righteous people and on the right side of all sorts of things that she believed in, they were evangelical Christians. <laughs> that was the thing that was the most difficult pill for her to swallow. They were, she's actually related, uh, you know, through the extended family to Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> and she didn't know that. And so, so now she's essentially said, I was a fool for 20 years. I was completely wrong about my own personal family background and about the past in general. But also, I had bought into an entire program of violence she talks about the ANC and when she discovers about this, you know, marvelous, you know, movement that Nelson Mandela led and how much suffering uh, that movement has, has, uh, you know, uh, you know, brought about in the lives of not white, you know, Afrikaners. We're talking yeah. about other Africans, just uh, horrific stuff. And um, it's the inability of the left to actually deal with, with any kind of feedback that doesn't, sort of reinforce their, as they say, narrative yeah. that I think is their, is, the, is their, you know, their weak spot. I mean, all you have to do is just engage with reality in the present and then actually look at the past and do it justice. Now, I, as I noted earlier, you'll, you keep both eyes open. You see the bad, but you also see the good. Don't Close one of the eyes. Keep them both open. Let's be mature about this. Let's be adults. Yeah. Let's recognize that there's good and bad in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going back to France, you know, there, the fact is the Ancien Regime, the old order in France, was hopelessly corrupt. It did need to change. And not all of the ideas of the Enlightenment guys were wrong. The problem was, though, when they got to power, again, I I think I said this before, when they got to power and tried to implement their ideas, they realized that the problems were too big to be solved by their theories. And because they really believed it was necessary to throw out the entire past, they couldn't draw on much they, they, they lacked the necessary resources to begin to actually try to solve the problems that were there because it was all about throwing out everything in the past. And it's a, what I see is a danger that we're heading right in that direction now. But, you, 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 know, you, you know, of course, you, you'll never accuse me of being guilty of unwarranted uh, leaps into wrong directions. Um, but one of the things what you mentioned... <laughs> Uh, uh, sparks is, is this very notion, I think, that when you, you're talking about the Enlightenment and, and properly, critically about it, um, is a lot of people basically assume that, for example, a traditionalist Christian is someone who fully supports the Enlightenment. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they don't realize. We, we were the left before there was a left, if you will, uh, without becoming a, 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 a left that is kind of detached from reality. Um, what we were saying all along is, is that the kind of um, synthesis that the Enlightenment wanted to replace the Christian connectedness of things with after it broke down, after you know, nominalism and different things, um, we were always saying is illegitimate and perverted both Christian understanding of reality as well as as the rest of these things. And so a lot of the problems that developed with the Enlightenment that remain with us today that we would share a critique of 
Um, but we, our critique is one that, that, that says we can actually out-narrate, if you will, <laughs> um, rather than have to move into a, a nihilistic destruction. Um, we, we, have, we have the riches and the capacity to actually take what the Enlightenment stole from Christianity to place it back within its, its full reality picture and then actually set it going for the flourishing of everyone. And I think that's what the abolitionists were up to. And that's what some of these other figures were is, you know, we, we, we are not people that are here to defend the Enlightenment. We don't need to defend the Enlightenment. Um, even the things of the Enlightenment that we have benefited from tend to, ben the benefits we get tend to come from the Judeo-Christian aspects that have informed the Enlightenment, not from the, the, the parts of the Enlightenment actually undercut those things. And so, I mean, you, you have, you know, I think Deneen, other figures um, we've, we've actually engaged before actually are onto this, you know, their critiques of, 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 of Locke and freedom. Um, Schindler, or I think it's Schindler. Um, the, yeah, these David, yeah. Yeah, the, these different figures, they, we kind of share that. Um, and so, so one of the things I think that is important, uh, I, you know, one of our, our fellow church members, Chris, always talks about what does it look like when we actually step into reality. I think one of the ways of stepping in is to start to articulate the difference of, of genuine Christianity in terms of its historical shape and form, um, in terms of its essentials, um, in contrast both to the Enlightenment and to the kind of left-wing hijack of, of, of it. And I think what Glenn hits on with, with revivals is what you see is uh, attempts to do that. These are attempts to do it. And when they attempt to do that, they actually have the most important kinds of social um, change happening when they're trying to, to basically hold fast to what is distinct about being a Christian in those competing um, visions that that want to kind of absorb them and they didn't they refuse to be absorbed I mean you you look at uh, figures like like Edwards you look at figures like um, um, Wilberforce and you look at figures like Wesley even Wesley I mean here's somebody who they they knew their game in terms of what was going on in their intellectual climate but they also didn't refuse the historic Christian vision yeah you, you brought up Deneen a minute ago uh, you know, Patrick's a friend of mine. Maybe we should have him on the show sometime. Talk about yeah. his book, "Why Liberalism Failed." Yeah. See, one of these days, I got to actually send some letters out to some people and ask them to be on the show. <laughs> We've talked about some things. I think we're getting to a point where you need to stop. I think you have a, a class you need to go to soon, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Holy <Okay>. shit! <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been your show, Glenn, and I know we didn't get to everything you wanted to talk about, but is there anything you want to wrap up with? Yeah, I, I guess the thing that really got me thinking about this was, was um, actually I did a podcast with Breakpoint on the question of, um, is the situation we're facing now unprecedented? And if not, where are the historical um, parallels? And... It occurred to me that the, that there are certain things about our culture that are unprecedented, but the best parallels that I can think of really is that we have a choice set before us of either, you know, with all of the social unrest we're facing now, we can either go the direction of France or we can go the direction of England. And uh, I will opt every time for England in, under these circumstances. Now, this assumes as this would, this is another whole topic. But this assumes that circumstances outside of the U.S. don't hijack the whole discussion. Yeah. Um, and if you're uh, not paying attention to what's going on in the Three Gorges Dam in China, you should yeah. be. Let's yeah. just kind of note that. But um, assuming, <laughs> assuming it doesn't collapse by the time this is uh, put up, um, uh, assuming that things stay stable globally, this is an issue we're going to need to deal with. Right. Yeah, I think the that whole the whole scenario that many of our you know younger many younger people didn't ever actually personally you know have any memory of the fact that there once upon a time was a rival that could destroy us when we had the Soviet Union in its its heyday is rec is returning and mm -hmm. it's a it's it's a factor that 
uh, is just beginning, I think, to dawn on some people that we might have assumed it would never dawn on. <laughs> but, but anyway, well, uh, we should probably call it call it a show uh, just because Tom needs to get to work uh, and uh, he's got more work to do tonight. More work to but, do. well thanks a lot for listening to the theology podcast and we really are glad that you do and maybe maybe next show we'll be back in a pub we'll let you know but anyway uh, thanks again bye-bye bye-bye bye now